I'm going to continue today our teaching series called Rebuilders, a teaching series on Nehemiah. We've been tracking the journey of Nehemiah. The the people of Israel had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Nehemiah hears about the destruction of the city that he loves, Jerusalem, um, and he decides that he wants to lead a team to go back to the city to start a rebuilding project. Um, And hopefully you can draw the parallels of this cultural moment that we find ourselves in as we engage in a hopeful rebuilding project. But this is the journey we've been on if you've missed any of it. So week one, we spoke about weeping over the ruins. This is the, the verse as Nehemiah hears about what's happened to Jerusalem. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When he heard that the city had been destroyed, that it was left in ruins, he was devastated. His first response was to fall to his knees, to weep and to begin praying. That's amazing, right? For so many of us, our first response when we hear of that level of trauma, it's like, okay, we need to get active. We need a move of social activism to come up against this. But for Nehemiah, the first response was to let the pain out, to get to his knees and to weep over what had been lost. This city, Jerusalem, the city that was meant to speak of the shalom, the wholeness, the peace of God had been totally destroyed. So week one, we spoke about weeping over the ruins, weeping with those that weep. We've lost so much in this COVID crisis that we've been facing. Week two, we spoke about building altars in the midst of the devastation, choosing to worship in the midst of the pain. Listen to the prayer that Nehemiah prays. This is just after he's fallen to his knees and been weeping. He says, Lord, the God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice the prayer. I think if that was me, I'd fall to my knees and be basically saying, God, where are you? Can you see the devastation? This city's been totally destroyed. How did you let this happen? It would be lament. But for Nehemiah, it's like, God, I'm going to remind myself of your character. You are the God of heaven. You are great and you are awesome. And I'm going to remind myself that with you, nothing is impossible. Our highest priority right now isn't social activism. Our highest priority is passionate worship, that we would celebrate the character and the nature of God and we would put our trust in him. Week three, last week, Anna looked at inspecting the rubble, understanding this moment we find ourselves in. She spoke about Nehemiah going for a stroll through the night, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. This is a moment for us to examine what have we lost, but more than that, where is God working? I love what Jesus says to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the one that that they thought they were establishing the kingdom and pursuing the kingdom, but essentially they were pursuing their own agenda. They couldn't actually see what God in human flesh, in the person of Jesus, was establishing. So Jesus says to them, look, you can look at the, the sky and you can forecast the weather, like, well done, impressive, but why can't you read the signs of the times? Why can't you see what I'm doing? Why can't you jump on board the kingdom movement that's happening all around you? Like, we need to be observant in this moment. Yes, we've lost so much, but the Spirit of God is at work. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to lay aside any of my plans and my best thinking to jump on board what God is doing. We need to be a people that are inspecting the rubble, reading the times. Which leads to this week, we begin hopeful rebuilding, but we need to acknowledge that there is rebuilding with resistance. So this thinker and theologian, Alan Redpath, 
he says this, this is his commentary on Nehemiah having sort of embraced the story of Nehemiah. His conclusion is this, there is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. For when the people of God say, let us arise and build, Satan says, let me arise and oppose. The point is this, nothing of the kingdom goes uncontested, right? When God speaks, when God moves, you can expect, you can guarantee opposition. And this has been our story as a church over the last 10 years. Whenever God's been moving in and through us as a community, there's been backlash, there's been opposition. When we planted the church 10 years ago, there were people trying to stop this being established. Even in their first year, there were some people trying to shut the church down. Other parts of our story, like we've sensed God doing something and then this kind of wave of backlash would come. Now, pre-COVID, I don't know if you remember this, we were talking a lot about revival, contending for a move of the Spirit. We were tuning into some of the prophetic voices, not just here in London, not just here in the UK, but globally, basically saying it feels like something stirring. Like quoting 1 Kings 18, the story of Elijah, where Elijah can see a cloud in the distance. It's as small as a, a man's fist, but he says, can you hear the sound of the heavy rain? Get ready, the rains are coming. And we were speaking into that, like, guys, as a church, let's get ready. We believe there will be an outpouring of the Spirit that God wants to revive his church because it's pretty dead, and he wants to bring an awakening to the culture. And we went big on that message, yeah? And then COVID hit, and we went fairly quiet on that message. And suddenly it feels like a fog has descended. And it's like, we don't know where we're going. We thought we could see, you know, in the distance and, and, and see with a level of clarity. And now we're walking through fog and we don't know what's happening next week, let alone sort of six months, a year down the line. It's like, God, where are you? That's, that is so often the way. You know, throughout scripture, when God's about to break in, when there's about to be a kingdom breakthrough, suddenly a darkness descends. There's this opposition and you have to hold on to what was spoken in the light of God. We, we believe that you do want to pour out your spirit, revive your church, awaken the culture. We can't see clearly right now, but we're holding on to the promises. We recognize that this is a moment of pushback, but Lord, would you come? Lord, would your kingdom be established in this city and far beyond? Nothing of the kingdom goes uncontested. Yesterday, I had to call an emergency plumber to our place. Um, one of the drains had been blocked and, and water and, and other stuff was beginning to rise up. So we phoned up this plumber. We're like, ah, oh, this is getting messy. Could you come round? And he came round. And, and I tried to do sort of my own DIY sort of job on it. I tried to get the end of a broom and just push it back down, go back down from where you came. And more stuff was coming up. Um, and he said, ooh, it, it's really badly blocked. And I was like, yeah, I, I do know that. And he said, I actually can't get to it because the blockage is quite far down. I'm going to have to drill another hole just to get you know, through to the, the crap, the, the other stuff, um, and then to sort of like clear the blockage so that the rains can actually begin to you know, flow through. And as he was talking, I just kind of felt like maybe this is what's happening in, in the spiritual right now. Like we're praying for a rain to fall, but the reality is right now, a lot of the drains are blocked. There's stuff in our lives. There's stuff in the church, systemic racism, but the list could go on that God's like, that's not in alignment with my kingdom. I want my rains to fall. I want to bring life, but I want to get rid of all this stuff that's in the way. And I started praying, Lord, would you do that? Lord, would you do that? I'm not going to let go of the promises. I'm going to keep believing that you want to pour out your spirit, but I recognize that nothing of the kingdom goes uncontested. 
So we're going to look at the story of Nehemiah. He has three waves of backlash. He's trying to establish the walls, rebuild the walls, and then attack after attack after attack comes. We're going to look at the different attacks. First attack, by the way, is ridicule. This is where you just sense the enemy close trying to make you look and feel like an idiot. Anyone been there? Just me. Okay, and Neil. Brilliant. And probably others on the live stream. So let's read this together, verse 1 of chapter 4. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even if a fox climbing upon it would break down their wall of stones. Now, trash talking has come a long way in the last few millennia, right? But I need you to know a bit of ancient Near Eastern context and history. That fox comment would have gone deep. That would have been a wounder. Like, have you seen, like, a fox? I know we're used to urban foxes, but have you seen them jump up on a wall? We've got a wall at the back of our our house, back of our garden, and we've got a problem with foxes right now. So regularly I see a, a fox, like, literally, just jump onto the wall. They are so dainty. They are dating, but they are disgusting. And and. I can't stand them. Because what they do is they come into our garden, and for whatever reason, they don't choose the neighbor's garden, um, and they urinate everywhere, and it smells awful. And, and more than that, they defecate everywhere. Like, most days, I'm going out with a shovel, like, uh, uh, as, as I try and get rid of this stuff. So I've started Googling. Like, I want to get rid of foxes. How do I do it? We've tried the little kind of, like, buzzer sound. It kind of... Ejects a high-pitched sound that hasn't been working. We've stooped really low. I just feel like this is a moment of confession, a safe space. I found this article that said, look, foxes mark out their territory. The only way to combat it, to really get rid of it, is for you to mark out your territory. (laughs) So I had a family meeting. I got mainly the boys together. B and Olive didn't want to be involved. I said, guys, we need to mark out our space. Are you in? They said, we are in, Dad. We, we will stand alongside you. So we checked that the neighbours weren't around, and, and we've been urinating around our garden. And it's not fully worked, but it's a work in progress. It is working. Now, that hasn't got much to do with the actual text, and it's a massive overshare. Um, the point is, I hate foxes, and this fox comment would have gone deep. They're trying to ridicule Nehemiah. Like, what are you doing? This is a feeble effort. You are embarrassing yourself in the sight of the nations. But listen to Nehemiah's response. Verse 4, he says, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. Notice this. First response is prayer. If you can worry, you can pray. If you can worry, you can pray. All you need to do is put the word Lord in front of your worry. Lord, I'm really stressed about this thing. I think I'm in over my head. You know, Lord, I, I'm just, I don't know how this will pan out. And then turn it into prayer. If you can worry, you can pray. So Nehemiah is worried, but he turns into prayer. Here us a God, we're despised. And what's his response? He prays and then he acts. He carries on rebuilding with all of his heart, this wholehearted approach. I'm not going to be distracted. I'm going to pray. I'm going to build. Second wave of attack, this is intimidation. If you ever experienced this, where you're stepping into something that feels like God's plan for your life, but you get this intimidation that comes against you, like back down. Like, I'm going to come against this, I'm going to pose it back down. This is what happens. 
When Sambalat Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. This is when you know it's demonic attack, spiritual attack, right? When the whispers, like, you know, just continue. Like, you don't get told once, you don't get told twice. It's happening again and again. You're an idiot. What you're about to do is so stupid. Back down. You should back down. And it comes at you left, right, and center. This is what they're experiencing, right? A spirit of intimidation. Do not rebuild the walls. And this is how Nehemiah responds. If you can worry, you can. Yeah, you can. I just sense the live stream. We're fully engaged at that point, and that meant a lot. Um, Nehemiah, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Response, action. And the action this time is to be alert, to stay alert. It says in the scriptures that the devil prowls like a, a lion waiting to devour. We stay alert when we sense there is spiritual attack around us. Third wave of attack. So the enemy will try and ridicule, he'll try and intimidate, and if he's not successful, he'll try and entice you to compromise. If you have to go ahead, go ahead, but just shrink back on some of the plans. Like just, you know, cut a few corners. This is what happens. When the word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that point I'd not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. That, that was a sign, right? The plain of Ono. Like, oh, no. If it'd be no, yes, it'd be fine, but it's on the plain of Oh no. That's a dad joke, but keep going. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. Each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter. Oh, what does it say? It is reported among the nations and Geshem says it's true. That's real playground behavior, isn't it? It's reported amongst the nations, and Geshen says it's true, so it must be true, um, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a new king in Judah. Total lies. Not even a half truth. Total fabrication. Now, this report will get back to the actual king. So come. Let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. And as I said, trash talking's come a long way in the last few millennia. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work. It will not be completed. Remember the response. If you can worry, you can. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. In other words, I turn back to God like, strengthen these hands because we're going to finish what we started. You see, chapter four of Nehemiah is really about spiritual warfare. We are caught up in a battle. We know that to be true. So let me just give you some points about spiritual warfare that's worth embracing. Number one, that no one can be a pacifist in prayer. 
No one can be a pacifist in prayer. When we engage in prayer, we are engaging in battle. This is what Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These battles we're engaged in, like taking on systemic racism, that's not just a battle around human brokenness. There are demonic forces driving that, and we're caught up in that struggle. Paul also says this, 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. They're not swords and spears and dot, dot, dot. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. When you pray, do you know that's what's happening? You have this power to demolish strongholds. C.S. Lewis, this is a, a brilliant bit of wisdom of how to engage in this mindset of, of battle. He says, there are two equal but opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. This is C.S. Lewis basically saying you'd be an idiot to deny the existence of evil, the demonic that's at work in the spiritual realm, but you'd also be an idiot to be overly obsessed with darkness. We are to be obsessed with the light, and in the light we push back darkness. Um, a theologian who I hugely respect that I think has a, a great balance on this, the Reformation theologian Martin Luther said this, I resist the devil. And often it is with a fart that I chase him away. I mean, to have that level of banter in the Reformation ages, it's hard not to respect that, right? But, but he's basically saying, no, I am going to push back darkness, but it's all right to be playful about it because we've been given all authority as sons and daughters of the light. So no one can be a pacifist in prayer. Secondly, we pray from a place of victory. Colossians 2, Paul says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So we pray from a position of victory. That means Satan has been defeated, but not destroyed. So the end of the story, the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21, is the story of heaven and earth being reconciled, all things being restored to how they were in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But the preceding chapter, Revelation chapter 20, is the story of Satan being thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, it's the story of his destruction, and after his destruction, the new creation is established in all of its glory. Now, we believe that the victory was guaranteed at the cross and at the resurrection. Satan has been defeated, but we await his destruction when Christ returns. And a lot of thinkers have used this as an illustration for the time that we find ourselves in, that essentially the 6th of June 1944 was D-Day, when the Allies stormed the beaches and took the beachhead. And from that point on, everyone knew it was a guarantee that this was the end of the Second World War. They needed to push back Nazi Germany, but it was like a sure thing. It was a done deal. And yet, they needed to wait almost a year, 8th of May, 1945, for VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, where they could enjoy peace and celebrate the full end of the battle. In that year between, the war kind of went on, but victory was guaranteed. That's the place we find ourselves in right now. We pray from a place of victory, but we ask for that victory to be made known all around us in the midst of the struggle. Thirdly then, we stand firm in prayer together. Emphasis, stand 
together. So in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about the armor of God, you don't need to read the text, by the way, Um, but when he talks about putting on the armor of God as we engage in this warfare, there's one verb that stands out. And what's the verb? Stand, very good, good reading. Um, Four times Paul uses this verb that we stand against the devil's schemes, we stand our ground, we stand and we stand firm. Here's the point, that as we stand firm, the kingdom advances. This is the promise of God. All you need to do is stand firm, I'll do the advancing. So don't get cocky. Don't think that you can be the Messiah, that you can be the rescuer. You just stand your ground, I'll do the advancing, but you need to stand together. So as Paul talks about the shield of faith in this passage, this would have been the image in mind, a picture of the Roman army. Someone on your left, someone on your right, shields above you. Your shins are pretty exposed, so you might take a hammering there. But apart from that, you are going to be protected if you stand together. If you break rank, if you get cocky and go solo and think you can do it in your own strength, you are going to be vulnerable. Paul says you have this shield of faith, so stand firm, but stand together. Don't get isolated. Listen to how many stories in Scripture there are of essentially the people of God just standing firm and God doing the advancing. The Exodus narrative. Red Sea in front of them, Egyptian army behind them. God says, don't try and swim. Like, don't jump into the waves and think you're going to make it. Stand your ground. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. They just stood firm. God did the advancing. Um, 2 Chronicles 20, they're faced with a vast army. Um, And the Lord says, do not be afraid or discouraged because of the vast army. This battle is not yours, it's mine. You'll not have to fight this battle. Take your positions and stand firm. You stand firm, I'll do the advancing time and time again. So how do we stand firm? Particularly against the lies that come after us. Um, Jesus says of the enemy, he says, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of all lies. Most of us are exhausted right now. Like the last six months have been brutal. You know, some of us homeschooling, working from home, high pressure, so much change. We're mentally as well as physically and emotionally exhausted. When you're exhausted, you're more prone to lies, right? So we need to be alert. Um, So what will the enemy try and do? He will try and condemn. You know, the enemy, he's not omniscient, which means all-knowing. Only God is omniscient, knows all things. So the enemy doesn't know your future, but he does know your past. And he will try and dig it up to condemn you. Just that whisper in your ear, like, you shouldn't be doing that. I I know what you did when you were 17. Hey, I know that relationship that went horribly wrong. I know what you've been doing at your workplace. You shouldn't be doing what you're doing now. You're not qualified because that stuff disqualifies you, right? It's a horrible voice. It's a shaming voice. But we know there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, right? That he separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He washes the slate clean. So when the enemy tries to get some chalk and write it up there again, we basically say, no, God has like dealt with all of that stuff. I will not come under condemnation. But right now, my guess is a lot of us are experiencing a higher level of that voice of condemnation. Secondly, accusation. The enemy will try and distract you in the present. Just speak accusation after you. You know that faith decision you're making? That's not faith. It's foolishness. You're being arrogant. It's ego. You've got a massive ego. You think you, little old you, can do that. This voice of accusation. And we need to push back. 
Thirdly then, intimidation. We spoke about this earlier. He doesn't know your future, but he will try and create anxiety around the future. Like if, if you do that, do you know what the fallout will be? You're going to make a mess and you're going to humiliate yourself and you'll drag others into it. And this voice of intimidation basically saying, shrink back from the faith decision. Shrink back from stepping into all that God has for you. How do we stand against this onslaught? Here's a few very quick thoughts and really obvious. This is the Sunday school answer. Pray. You know, when Paul talks about the armor of God, he concludes with this verse, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. You can almost hear desperation. Just find any old way to pray. Do it in your journal, stamp your feet, pray in tongues, pray in English, fast, use your body to pray. Just find a way to pray because prayer is where the battle is won. Pray with all authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. The implication is, all been given to me, and I now give it to you. You have all authority. Do you realize when you pray how much authority you have? We don't really get hold of that. We think we've got a little bit of authority, but Jesus says, no, you've got all authority. The question is, isn't do you have enough? It's are you going to use what you already have? Listen to these words, Karl Barth. It says, in Christ, we are set at God's side and lifted up to him and therefore to the place where decisions are made in the affairs of his government. And this is what takes place in Christian prayer. We then find ourselves at the very seat of government, at the very seat of the mystery and purpose of all occurrence. What? Is that just me? That's like we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, right? So when you're walking to work and you just offer up your most half-assed prayer, like that half-hearted prayer that you've not got a huge amount of faith for, what we don't realize is we are seated in the heavenlies. We are seated at God's government, and we can speak things into being that have ramifications for the earthly realm. This is why Paul would say, like, pray on all occasions. Just find any old way to pray, because you've got all authority. Pray in the name of Jesus. Jesus sends out the 72. To heal the sick, cast out demons, do the stuff of the kingdom. They come back, it says, with joy. Because they've had the most amazing time seeing God's kingdom break out. Um, and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us. And here's the key phrase, in your name. Because that's where the authority is located. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Finally, we pray according to God's promises. So if you're in a struggle right now, this would be my encouragement, right? Is you find the promise of God that relates to your situation and you pray into being. If you feel isolated and alone, you hold on to the promise that God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If the path before you is uncertain and you are freaking out, you hold on to Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. You basically find the promise. You apply it to the situation. You say, Lord, would you fulfill the promise? Listen to these words from Derek Prince, a thinker, theologian, pastor. He says this, you will never pray a higher or more effective prayer than when guided by the Holy Spirit, you go to the word of God, you find the promise that relates to you and your situation and say, Lord, you've said it, now do it. Lord, you've promised, now fulfill that promise. Let me close with it with a story just to remind us of all that's happening in us, around us, um, and the authority that we've been given. So this is by Larry Christensen. It's called The Renewed Mind. He says this, think of yourself 
as living in an apartment house. You live there under a landlord who has made your life miserable. He charges you exorbitant rent. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I, I can relate to that. When you can't pay, he loans you money at a fearful rate of interest to get you even further into his debt. He barges into your apartment at all hours of the day and night, wrecks and dirties the place up, then charges you extra for not maintaining the premises. Your life is miserable. He's talking about the work of the enemy, right? Then someone who says, I've taken over this apartment house. I've purchased it. You can live here as long as you like, free. The rent is paid up. I'm going to be living here with you in the manager's apartment. What a joy, you're saved, you're delivered out of the clutches of the old landlord. But what happens? You hardly have time to rejoice in your newfound freedom when a knock comes at the door and there he is, the old landlord, mean, glowering and demanding as ever. He's come for the rent, he says. What do you do? Do you pay him? Of course you don't. Do you go out and bop him on the nose? What great language, it was written quite a few years ago. No, he's bigger than you. You confidently tell him, you'll have to take that up with the new landlord. He may bellow, threaten, wheedle, and cajole. You quietly tell him, take it up with the new landlord. If he comes back a dozen times with all sorts of threats and arguments, waving legal documents in your face, you simply tell him once again, take it up with the new landlord. In the end, he has to. He knows it too well. He just hopes that he can bluff and threaten and deceive you into doubting that the new landlord will really take care of things. You know, we've been purchased at a price. You are not your own. You've been purchased by Christ Jesus. You are located in Christ Jesus. When the voice of accusation and ridicule and intimidation and compromise, when it comes your way, you basically say, I am in Christ. Take it up with the new landlord. This is an extraordinary moment we find ourselves in. A spiritual battle is raging. We know that nothing of the kingdom goes uncontested, right? We believe that, you know, the Lord wants to pour out his spirit, revive his church, bring an awakening to the culture. We believe that stuff. We're praying for that stuff. And we know that stuff will be opposed, right? So we stand our ground, believing in the very depth of our being as we stand he advances. Amen? Amen.